So good to be here worshiping God with you this morning. Do y'all remember the movie Castaway? It's a little old at this point with Tom Hanks. He was a FedEx employee riding on a FedEx airplane that went down and crashed on this deserted island and he's the only survivor of the of the crash. He spends five years on that island all by himself. And in the movie, uh, he basically finds all these FedEx packages and uh, opens them and tries to use the items that are in these packages to help him survive for these five years. But there's one package he never opens. It's kind of a physical, tangible representation of Tom Hanks' hope that one day somebody is going to rescue him. One day he is going to leave that island and one day he is actually going to take that package he saved and he's going to deliver it to its destination. Hope is such a powerful thing and it's so necessary specifically in the darkest moments. That's kind of the situation we find ourselves in the passage we're going to look at today. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22, a moment of true uh, concern for the whole people of Israel because Moses is about to die. And there are huge question marks as to what's going to happen in the future. They're not yet in the promised land. Uh, And it's inhabited by a bunch of warrior nations. And some of those warriors are actually giants. And of course Israel is just a bunch of slaves who have spent 40 years in the wilderness complaining and eating God's food. And not training for military engagement. That's not who they are. So there are a lot of question marks. And with Moses dying, who's going to make it happen? Uh, it's, It's a dark moment for the people of Israel and there are a lot of uh, things that might lead them to despair. Uh, so that's, that's the moment uh, we're going to be looking at today in Deuteronomy 18 and if you know the book of Deuteronomy is the last of the books of Moses. He, the first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the books of Moses and I do believe that they largely were penned by him. Um, And Deuteronomy is the last of these in which Moses knows he's going to die and he actually gives a series of speeches to the people of Israel. They're kind of his farewell speeches. And what he does in Deuteronomy is he reviews the history. This is what has happened. This is what God has done for us and with us. And he reviews the law, the covenant of the law that Israel has entered into with God. He goes over all of this and uh, kind of prepares Israel for what lies ahead. That's the, the whole purpose of Deuteronomy. It's just Moses talking to the people of Israel. And we pick it up here in chapter 18, verse 15. I've described the situation and the kinds of concerns that people might be having at this moment. So uh, let's consider what Moses has to say to the people of Israel. Verse 15. Yahweh, your God will raise up to you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You will listen to him. So as Moses knows, he's telling them he's about to die. He's told them, I'm not, getting, I'm not going into the promised land with you. Uh, so he knows that that 
causes all sorts of fears to rise in them. And then he shares with them something God has let him know. That God, Yahweh, is going to continue raising up a prophet for the people. God has been communicating with Israel through Moses. God has been uh, working out this relationship with Israel, this covenant commitment between himself and the people of Israel. He's used Moses to kind of mediate that relationship. Now that Moses is going to pass on, that's not the end of the relationship. God is not going to stop pursuing Israel. He says, I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing. I will continue to raise up people who will help mediate this relationship because God is not going to stop pursuing Israel. Let me ask you, think about it. Uh, Moses has left behind the written law. He's left behind these books of Moses the kind of beginning core of what would be the scriptures, the Bible. And as he's passing on, he says, God's going to continue. He has more to say. He's going to bring more people into the conversation. Let me ask you, how has God communicated with you through his written word, through the Bible? And how has he committed, communicated with you through other people? Keep reading verse 16. According to everything you asked of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, May I not hear the voice of Yahweh my God again, and may I not see this great fire any longer lest I die. Moses reminds them of that moment when they entered into this covenant relationship with God. A covenant is a mutually binding agreement. Two parties sit down at a table and one commits something to the other and the other commits something back. The most sacred human covenant we know is marriage where two people commit themselves to each other for the rest of their lives. This covenant that God entered into with Israel uh, took place at Mount Horeb or also called Mount Sinai in some passages. Uh, but on this mountain, when this covenant was being established and uh, kind of the core part of it was the law, God was going to give guidance and instruction so that Israel could know how to live life and to live life in a good way. And God gave them through Moses the law. Their duty was to keep the law, to follow God's guidance. And God's commitment was to care for them, protect them, and supply all that they needed. They would be his people. He would be their God. That's the moment Moses is reminding them of. But he's also reminding them of what a frightening day that was for Israel. Because on that day, God allowed his glory to become perceptible. For most of the time we live as human beings here on earth, God's glory is veiled to us. We, we're not fully aware of the full glory of who God is and what he is. Uh, we're, we're unaware of it. This was one of those moments where God said, I want Israel to know who they're entering into a covenant with. So he allowed his glory to become visible to Israel, but he had to cover it. 
He had to cover it in deep darkness and clouds and thunder and lightning. And he had to cover the glory because God knew that if he were to show his full glory to Israel, they would be consumed in an instant. Even Moses, when he pleaded with God, I want to see your glory, God said, no man can see my glory and live. <clears throat> God is so pure and holy and righteous and so far beyond anything we are or could ever be that to be exposed to the full force of his glory would consume us in an instant. So God held back his glory and hid it in dark clouds, in darkness. But even veiled as it was, the glory was so overwhelming, the people thought they were going to die. That is the common description of human beings encountering God up close and personal. Read through the Bible moments like this where people have these moments where the veil that keeps us blinded to who God is is thinned and we perceive who God is. What is the immediate reaction? For Peter, it's to fall on his knees and say, get away from me, I'm a sinful man, Jesus. For the people of Israel, it's to plead with Moses, Moses, you go up the mountain. We cannot bear to draw near to God. This is what happens when we are exposed to who God really is. Something happens inevitably that we suddenly are keenly aware. And perhaps it's something of the righteousness of God that it dispels all deception and lies and in his, the glory of his presence we can no longer deceive ourselves about who we are and all of a sudden we stand bare and naked before a holy God and all of our sin is everywhere. And we become aware of what we try to hide all the time that we are unworthy. That God is righteous and I am not and that I do not deserve to be near him. And that uh, it, would, it would destroy me to be fully exposed to that glory. The response of human beings before the glory of God has always been not just awe and respect, but terror. And it's rightly so. We are sinners before a holy God. And we have squandered the gift of life he gave us. And we have trampled the goodness he has put before us. And we have spit in his face in a million ways. And we are unworthy of being before him. And when the veil is pulled apart and we are allowed to glimpse the glory of who God is, we do exactly what Israel did in this moment. Who am I to even be here? They said, Moses, you go talk to God. We can't draw near. We don't want to die. That's how deeply they felt the gulf, the distance between who they were and who God is. Have you ever had an encounter with God that made you want to hide from His glory? And how has God made himself accessible to you in ways that don't overwhelm you? 
Let's keep reading verse 17. And Yahweh told me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up to them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And it will be that the person who will not listen to my words, which he will speak in my name, I will require it of him. God spoke to Moses about that moment. And God said, you know what? They have spoken is good. It is good for us to have a right uh, estimation or a, a right appreciation or at least an approximation of a right understanding of what our status is before God Almighty. Because it is too easy for us, given the fact that we are not exposed to his, the fullness of his glory day to day, to deceive ourselves into thinking that God is really not all that big a deal. And you see people doing this all the time. We talk about God like he's something we made up. And we debate about him. And we talk about what God can or can't do or can be or can't be. And we have our theological positions and we argue with each other. That's within the Christian community. You get us outside of that and we're arguing about whether God exists at all or not. And if he were to exist, he certainly couldn't do the things he's doing because I have decided that God should not be able to do things that way. Therefore, he doesn't exist. And we, we, we have inflated our sense of importance, our, our hubris, our pride reaches such staggering heights that we actually function like the universe revolves around me. And even God's existence is mine to determine, mine to evaluate, and mine to dictate. What we need is a healthy encounter with God where all that deception is burned away by the glory of his presence and we're left with nothing but our shame and sin when that happens people arrive at a true estimation of our position before God so God says to Moses what they have spoken is good it is actually true that if I were to expose Israel to my full glory, they would be toast. They'd be consumed in an instant, and it's good that they know that. We need to know that. To have a relationship with God, we have to know who He is and who we are. And notice God doesn't say, that's right. You know, I don't even know why I showed up. You guys don't deserve me. Bye. God could have said that. But that's not what he goes on to say. He says, you know what they've said is good. I am going to raise up to them a prophet like you. I'm going to raise up somebody else and continue to do the kind of thing I've been doing with you, Moses. I'm going to continue to raise up people like them who are from among them who will be able to communicate my words to them and I will use them to share uh, my message with them so that I can have this relationship with Israel in a way that does not consume them in the process. I will allow my presence to be mediated so that we can have this relationship. And I will continue to raise up prophets. 
You see, Moses wanted Israel to understand it wasn't I who got you out of, a, of slavery in Egypt. In fact, when God showed up and said, Moses, I want you to go get my people out of slavery in Egypt, you know what Moses said? Send someone else. I don't want to. First he tried to provide excuses and God answered each one of them and finally when he was out of excuses he just said, God, I just don't want to do it. Which, by the way, is when God got angry with Moses. And Moses is reminding Israel, I'm not the one who fed you 40 years in the wilderness. I'm not the one who provided water from the rock. I'm not the one who provided manna every morning. I'm not the one who has sustained your life and broken you free from slavery in Egypt. I'm not the one who defeated the army of the Pharaoh. God is the one who's been doing all of this. And just because he's using me to communicate some words to you, don't ever think that I'm the key. Moses wants Israel to know he's going to die. He's going to be gone. That's not going to affect a whole lot. Sometimes we think that. You know, you have a great leader. If, they're, if they pass on, uh, the, the loss is going to be devastating. And we forget that it wasn't the leader who was doing us all these things that we needed. It was God who was at work. And God says, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing through you, Moses. I will do it through other people. But I'm not abandoning this relationship. I will raise up people to speak to them what I command them. God's not done communicating. Even in terms of written word of God, the, the books of Moses are just the beginning. There are a whole lot of other books that are going to be written that God is going to inspire by his Holy Spirit and leave behind uh, in, the, in the end a total of 66 books that communicate in written form God's message to us. But that's not all. God has uh, things to tell us about how to understand the written words he's given us. And he's going to continue using people to help us mediate this relationship in a way that does not destroy us in the process. And when God communicates a message through someone, he expects us to listen and to heed. Not just hear, but actually obey. God says that if we don't, I'm going to require it of him. God's going to hold us accountable for what he's told us and how we've responded to what he told us. So I want to warn you that just because the person delivering the message is imperfect, just because the person delivering the message is just as frail as you are and just as unworthy of being in the presence of God as you are, just because of that, it doesn't mean that when the message being conveyed is actually what God intended you to hear, that he doesn't expect you to listen to him. Now don't ever put your attention on the one delivering the message. But listen, and if it is a message from God, obey it. Do what God is saying to you. If the Bible tells us everything we need to know from God, why has God continued using prophets, messengers of His, throughout all human history alongside Scripture? And given the words we've just read, should we obey God's prophets? You might think, well, that's a little dangerous. 
What happens when the guy who says, I have a word from God, is lying? What if it isn't a word from God? What if he just made it up? What if he is using God to manipulate me and get something out of me? Say, my money. Or manipulate my life in such a way that he gains from me what he wants. You know the old trick, uh, God told me you need to marry me? That's, by the way, the worst proposal ever. Uh, don't throw God into the mix and try to manipulate people like that. Uh, so clearly, we, we are aware that there are people who abuse this. And yet God says, if you don't listen to what I said, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. So we definitely want to heed what God is saying to us. How do we know the difference? Well, Moses goes on to give some, some help. However, verse 20, the prophet who acts presumptuously, speaking a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet will die. And when you say in your heart, how will we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh and the word does not happen, nor is it fulfilled, that is a word Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet spoke in pride. You will not fear from him. Sometimes religious figures can intimidate us. They throw their weight around. They have a lot of... Uh, capital in the community and they can seem very powerful and we're talking about days uh, where the people lived in very superstitious type cultures and things like curses and evil eye and all that were, were very real concerns for people and you, people might think well I need to do what this guy's saying or something really bad's going to happen to me and God says if he isn't somebody I sent to speak to you you don't need to fear anything from him because I'll take care of you I don't care what powers this witch doctor has he's not going to be able to do anything to you because I am going to take care of you those who turn to God need to understand that but how do we know when somebody's lying well one sure way is if the person says something that turns out to be a lie then that isn't what God says because God doesn't lie and there's no way he could lie. He couldn't accidentally lie by saying something's going to happen that doesn't end up happening because God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. There is no way for God to be wrong about anything. So if the prophet says something that turns out to not be true, then you know automatically that person is not speaking for God. Pay attention to these things. Somebody tells you, send me $100 and God will give you $1,000. You know, fool me once. But you'll notice very quickly whether that person was communicating a message from God or not. The minute you realize this is not from God because it didn't happen, stop listening to that person. He's a charlatan. He's a poser. He's claiming to communicate word of God and he's lying. And God thinks this is serious enough that in the law of Moses, this was a capital offense. If you claimed to speak for God and you were lying, they were to put you to death. And you might think, well, that's extreme. Well, let me tell you, words from God are life and death matters. You think there's anything more important than what God has to communicate to us? 
so if a prophet claims something that turns out to be not true it's not just oh he got it wrong this time just stop listening to that person there are other ways Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 3 if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for Yahweh your God is testing you to know whether you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul sometimes people do things that appear to be supernatural I do not doubt that there are witch doctors in this world who conjure spells and do things and there may be some supernatural thing going on I don't doubt that I don't doubt that there may be some psychic person out there who has some occasional insight that proves to be supernatural I, I don't doubt that those things can happen I don't really care because I'm not really interested in what a witch doctor has to tell me. I'm interested in what God has to tell me. Now in terms of what they're saying or doing or whatever, I don't have to worry. I have nothing to fear from them. Because if I'm pursuing God, he's got me. So occasionally there are people who do things that appear supernatural or appear to happen the way they said. And here's the next sentence. This is, for example, cults. They all have three things in common. There's an abuse of power, an abuse of money, abuse of sex. Every time. Somewhere in there, the abuse of power involves diminishing God in some way that the leader of the cult takes God's place. Now, all these things uh, happen, and you need to be able to say, you know what, this is not a message from God. And how do we know? Not just whether it's a lie or what they say is going to happen doesn't happen, but let me see what God's already said and compare. Now, when God says, uh, if this guy shows up, does something amazing, and says, let's go serve other gods, how do you know that's a lie? Why do you know that's a false prophet? Well, because God has already said, you will have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, you will have no other gods in my presence, and you will not make any statues of anything and worship them. So, if a person does something impressive, but then asks you to do something that God has already said not to do, guess what? God doesn't change his mind. That's the benefit of the scriptures, the written word of God. It gives us a firm uh, ground against which to compare everything else. Now, here's the tricky part about this way of knowing a fake. You have to know God's word. You have to know what God has already said. You have to make time in your busy life to read God's word and to know it. And it can seem like we're too busy for it. But is there a message more important to receive in our lives than what God has to say to us? 
when we know what God has said and somebody says something that contradicts it, then we know, wait a minute, that cannot be a prophet of God because in Hosea it says this, or in Isaiah it says this, or in Matthew it says this. The Apostle Paul said this, Jesus himself said this, and therefore this cannot be true. We can know that somebody is uh, being an imposter, claiming to speak for God uh, by comparing what they're telling us against what God has already said. Not all who claim to speak for God are telling the truth. How can we tell the difference between a genuine messenger of God and a fake? I could end here. But there's something about this passage that resonates through the rest of Scripture. It isn't just that this moment Moses was about to die and God's letting Israel know, I'm going to continue the conversation, I'm going to continue the, uh, the, the covenant relationship, and I will continue to raise up these mediators so that my glory does not overwhelm everything and we can have this relationship. But through the centuries, the Jewish people kept reading those words in Deuteronomy 18.50, God will raise up a prophet like me. And they kept saying, what's that like me bit? Because when Moses showed up, we were a bunch of slaves, we were nothing, we were a bunch of pagans really, and God gave us his law and entered into a covenant with us that changed everything. We were broken free from slavery and made children of God. There were a lot of prophets that came after Moses, but none of them did anything as earth-shattering as that. Basically, what the prophets that came after Moses did was they took the, work, the books of Moses and interpreted for their day, how do we obey God's instructions in the covenant? They were covenant uh, interpreters and enforcers through the centuries that allowed Israel to continue to live its covenant relationship with God. But they didn't really introduce a new grand thing. Some of them talked about it. Some of them talked about somebody who would come and bring a new covenant. Some of them talked about somebody yet to come, but none of them were it. And, and the Jews thought about this, this prophet like me. Nobody is, has risen to the stature. They all pale in comparison to Moses. So this prophet like me has not arrived. We can see it in the Gospel of John when John the Baptist starts his ministry and, and people wonder, oh, this guy's a prophet. Maybe he's the prophet that Moses was talking about. John 1, 19 through 21, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, this is John the Baptist, and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Anecdotally, I will say, even though John the Baptist said he was none of those three things, he was wrong about one of them. Jesus said he was that Elijah, the promised uh, person like Elijah that would show up and prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. But he apparently was not aware of it himself. Verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Notice, you need to capitalize prophet there. When they say the prophet, 
They're talking about this Deuteronomy 18.15 prophet, one like Moses. I think John in his gospel lets us know clearly who this person to convey, and that's what a prophet is. A prophet is somebody who shares God's word with other people, who conveys the message of God to other people. John writes his whole gospel around the idea of conveying a message. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the message, and the message was with God, and the message was God. And John's telling us that God wanted to communicate to us, and again, this idea begun in Deuteronomy 18 of God communicating through someone just like us from among us. God did that most supremely when he himself stepped into flesh. And this time, rather than veiling his glory in dark clouds and thunder and lightning, he veiled his glory in human flesh so that he could literally walk among us without consuming us. And how better could he communicate with us who he is than speaking his own words with human lips in human language and living a human life among us so that we could observe how kind and compassionate he was with sinners and broken people and how outraged he was with hypocrites and holier-than-thou people who thought they deserved everything. He communicated with us supremely in a way that far outstripped what we received through Moses. In fact, he came and established a new covenant that made the covenant of Moses obsolete. So if we're going to say a prophet like Moses and all the others were pale reflections of who Moses was, when the prophet showed up, it turned out that he was actually the real deal and Moses the pale foreshadowing. The shadow of the reality. Verse 14, John 1. And the word, the message became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see it in Acts when Peter preaches at Pentecost. He's explaining what they've just witnessed. He says, Moses said, Acts 3, 22 and 23, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Peter quotes the passage from Deuteronomy we've been looking at today and goes on to tell them this prophet God was talking about is Jesus. Stephen says the same thing in his sermon in Acts 7, 37 before they stone him to death. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And he goes on to say that's Jesus that Moses was talking about. At Christmas time, we remember that moment in which our hope took on flesh. How has Jesus been your perfect mediator for enjoying a genuine relationship with God? One that does not consume you in the process. 
When Moses died, Israel could have despaired. They could have thrown up their hands. How are we ever going to survive without Moses at the helm? Who's going to intercede for us when we mess up? Who's going to give us God's instruction? Moses reminded the people of the reality of their situation. It isn't me. If God didn't want to forgive your offenses, he never would have listened to my pleas on your behalf. I didn't make up any of it. He's the one who has sustained you, not me. And the God who had reached out to them through Moses would continue to reach out. He wants a relationship with us and he will continue to pursue us. The greatest expression of God reaching out to us comes in Jesus Christ. God himself come among us in the flesh. When we face dark days, we must turn to this prophet, this communicator of God's message to us and find our hope only in him. And this is a hope we have no need to fear losing it's eternally secure. If we will place our hope in him, if we will heed what he says to us, we will find we have no cause to fear ever. I don't know what things darken your heart and mind this time of the year as we enter into this season. Let me implore you, turn your eyes toward Jesus. Don't look at the darkness. Don't look at the despair. Hold fast to Jesus. He's the one who has been pursuing you your whole life long and will continue to do so. He's the one who has brought the people into your life that he is using to bring blessing into your life and uh, help and encouragement and who are speaking his words to you. He is the one who has given you his written word so that you can not be deceived by liars and you can know the difference. And he's going to carry you through it all if you will make him the object of your hope. We have a time to respond to God's word this morning. I don't know what's on your heart. If you do not yet know Jesus as the Savior of your life, then I want to invite you today to surrender your heart to him. If you already know him and today has been a reminder that you've taken your eyes off of Jesus and put them somewhere else and you have placed your hope in something that is perhaps right now failing you and you need to re-anchor your heart in Jesus. If that's you this morning, come forward during this time of response. We'll have people here. Let's all stand. I'd like to ask the people who are going to help us with the invitation to come to the front. Come to either side. Take a hand. Share with them what God has put on your heart. And let them pray with you. We're just here to encourage one another and strengthen one another. Maybe you just need some time alone here to kneel at the altar and pray to God yourself. Uh, whatever God has put on your heart, take advantage of this time of response to his word, his message. Come while we sing.